So we will be back in 1 Peter, and we've seen so far that this letter was written to encourage a group of believers to embrace their identity in Christ and to stand firm in their faithfulness to Him in the face of mounting pressure, pressure and persecution. That's, kind of the, that's Peter's theme throughout this. That's his purpose for writing. And he reminds them of what it means to be reborn and of the nature of the grace that they've received. He also points them back to their calling to follow Christ's example. We see that pop up over and over and over again, that Christ gave us an example to follow. And it's their calling to follow Him, to follow this example by being in submission to God's design and by living intentionally for God's glory, living with an eternal perspective. Multiple times thus far, he has reminded his audience that if we are in Christ, then our citizenship is in his kingdom, and we are but exiles here in this world until he returns. Citizenship is not just a title or a status, but it comes with certain duties, certain responsibilities. American citizens, for example, because of their identity as Americans, because of our identity as Americans, we have a duty to vote. To sign up, if you're a young man, sign up for the draft, to pay taxes, and to follow the laws of the land, etc., etc. And likewise, being a kingdom citizen comes with certain duties as well. And in today's text, as we go through the beginning here of 1 Peter chapter 4, I'm going to point out seven duties that we're going to call them today. Seven duties Christ followers have as recipients of God's saving grace. At this time... Would everyone please stand, as we've been doing, uh, in honor of God's Word, as we're going to read the first 11 verses of 1 Peter chapter 4. The first 11 verses of 1 Peter chapter 4, that's on page 1,296 of your pew Bible. If you want, I would encourage you to follow along. So starting in verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You again for today. Lord, as we have done frequently already this morning, but God, we just... uh, As we stop and we reflect on the many ways that you have blessed us, Lord, we have so much all around us to be thankful for. Lord, we thank you especially this morning for your word, for the access, the free and unfettered access that we have to it, Lord, that we so often take for granted. Lord, I pray as we 
dig into your word this morning that you would help us to be focused on what we're reading and what we're discussing. Lord, not just so that we would know more, but, that, that, but so that that knowledge would seep into our hearts and that it would, Lord, that you would change us, mold us into your image so that as we leave this place, we might better live by your example and follow your example, that we might better understand what it means to be a Christ follower and so be a brighter light in the world around us as we leave this place. Lord, help us to be doers of the word and not hearers only, and it's in Christ that we pray. Amen. All right, so as we're going through, I told you we're going to look at seven duties, what we're going to call duties of Christ followers, people who have received or been recipients of God's saving grace. And the first one here right off the bat is that we are, as Christ followers, to have the mind of Christ. Have the mind of Christ. We're going to look at the very beginning of verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1, the first half of that verse says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Here, Peter's referencing Christ's physical body when he's talking about suffering in the flesh. He's talking about his, his humanity, his life on earth. And there is no doubt that Jesus suffered physically and emotionally in his relatively short time on earth. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was ridiculed. He was tortured. He was humiliated. And ultimately, he was killed. And all of it was unmerited, for he had never sinned. He had done no wrong, yet he suffered greatly in his flesh. He suffered for our sin that we might receive his righteousness. Now, previously we have discussed how following Jesus will lead to unjust suffering at the hands of the world. For if the world treated Jesus poorly, we shouldn't expect any better treatment if we look and act and sound just like him. And that is what being Christ-like means, right? To look and act and sound, to have our lives conform to the pattern that Christ gave us. But not only are we to face suffering in this life as Jesus did, but here Peter points out that we are to have the mind of Christ. And another way to translate this phrase is to have the purpose of Christ. To arm ourselves with the same manner of thinking, the same focus, the same purpose. And this term to arm here is a military term, meaning to take up weapons, to prepare for battle, to, to be prepared, to get ready. And Paul in Ephesians talks in, in chapter 6 about arming ourselves with the armor of God. And he lists all the different pieces there. And I would encourage you to go back in Ephesians chapter 6 and refresh yourself and, and look that up. But Peter here points specifically to having the mind of Christ. To arm yourself with the mind of Christ. Not only to be prepared to suffer as he did, to suffer persecution for obedience to God, but to think about that suffering as he did. To face it as he did. Now what does, what does Peter mean by that? Jesus willingly faced unjust suffering for our sake. Why? Because ultimately, because it was God's will. I can guarantee you it wasn't easy. And no matter what injustice you and I will face in our lives, no matter what it is, it will pale in comparison to the injustice he faced on our behalf. It will pale in comparison. Guaranteed. Jesus was completely sinless. And so whatever injustice he faced is exponentially greater than anything that you and I will ever face. 
Look at Jesus' prayer in the garden shortly before his arrest, in Matthew, his arrest in Matthew 26, 39. Look at what Jesus himself said as Jesus prayed. It says, and going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. All right. It wasn't easy. It was, he knew what he was going into, what he was about to do was going to be difficult. That there was going to be great physical suffering that came with taking this next step. But look at that last phrase. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He willingly embraced the cross and all that came with it because that was God's will for him to do so. As recipients of this amazing grace... We also are to have the same mind towards suffering as Christ did. We are to die to sin and live for righteousness and face whatever cost comes with that commitment because that's God's will for us. We face it because it's God's will and we trust Him with the purpose. We trust Him with the purpose behind it all. And that leads straight into the second duty we have, which is to desire the will of God over the will of man. To desire the will of God over the will of man. That's, what, that's, that's the mind of Christ, right? That's what Jesus did. That's the example he gave. Look at picking up again in the, the end of verse 1 there through verse 6. Look at what Peter says to his audience. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does." So first of all here, he's not saying that we can be sinless or perfect as Jesus was, but Jesus suffered exactly or precisely because he was sinless. In his life on earth in the flesh, he never sinned, yet still he suffered in his flesh for doing God's will. Likewise, if we conform our lives to his example, as we have seen, we too can expect suffering. We too can expect persecution. When you turn from sin... When you turn your back on sin, when you reject the lies of Satan and the world around us, you can expect a certain degree of persecution to come as a result. But be encouraged that such persecution comes because our lives are beginning to mirror Christ. We've discussed this previously, but here Peter is reminding his audience of this fact. It is worth repeating because we need to constantly remind ourselves of this truth even today. Just as Jesus lived for the will of the Father, so too should we when we come to Christ in faith and turn from sin. We surrender our wants, we surrender our desires, and we exchange them for His wants and His desires. We exchange them for His will, His plan. That is what we are to live for. That is the example that Jesus set. Wednesday night we took some time to examine the Lord's Prayer. And we see this theme spelled out by Jesus in his blueprint, his his pattern of prayer that he gave his disciples in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. He said, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. He begins by praising God for who he is. And then because of who God is, because of his greatness and his holiness and the fact that he is all-powerful and all-knowing and absolutely perfect and unchanging in every way, because of that, he submits himself in verse 10 to the Father's will. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Because of who you are, may your will be done, not mine. You know better than me. No matter where you are in life or what your story is, Peter says your time, your time before Christ. Miss, Miss Tammy refers to this time as Tammy B.C. She talks about things that she did as Tammy B.C., Tammy before Christ. And that's, so, uh, that's such an appropriate way to describe what Peter's getting at here. The time in our lives B.C. was more than enough time to pursue sin. Because Christ, before Christ, we all lived lives driven by our own wills and our own desires, our own passions. And that time B.C. is full of regret and ultimately profited you nothing. There's nothing of eternal significance in that time before Christ. We're all sinners, but if you are now in Christ, then that time of living for yourself is behind you. It is over. That time was sufficient. It is gone. It is done. It is over with. You have been made new, so now it is time to move on. There should be a clear distinction in your life between your desires and your passions and your will then and your desires and your passions and your actions today. If you are in Christ, the time for living for yourself should be in your past. Peter said that behind you. He's encouraging people to, his audience, to, to move on, to press on in their faith. When you turn from that past and submit your life to the will of God, you're going to look different from the crowd that you used to run with. It's going to happen. Those of you, I think everybody knows me pretty well. I've always been fascinated with chickens. That's just kind of one of my things. Chickens do some weird things. If you've ever been around chickens for any length of time, they're just strange creatures. Hallie asked me just the other day why chickens have such tiny brains. I told her it was because they had tiny heads. But that, that answer didn't satisfy for some reason. I don't know. She, didn't, she wasn't buying that one. You may not know why, we may not know why chickens have such tiny brains, but watch them for a minute and you know it's true. Their, their, their brains are just undersized for some reason. If you pull a chicken out of the flock, for example, and you painted a small dot on its back and then turn it back into the chicken coop, all the other chickens will immediately notice that that chicken is different. But chickens don't have hands, so how do chickens check things out? They peck at it. That's what they do. They don't ignore it. They don't just sit there and stare at it. They walk over and they peck at it. And any bird that has anything different about them, this is, this is true. Any bird that has anything wrong with it, or if its wing is messed up, if it's missing some feathers, if something's wrong with that bird, the others will begin to peck at that spot. And they'll peck at it over and over and over again. And sometimes it will get so bad that they will actually peck a bird of their own flock to death because they're fixated on whatever's different about that bird. And people, we tend to respond in the same way. 
When you all of a sudden look different from the crowd that you used to run with, when you stop going to the same places or talking the same way or laughing at the same jokes or participating in the same activities, etc., for some reason, we act shocked when those people peck us. Peter says, when others see your submission to God's will over your own will, they will be surprised, and then what? They will malign you. They will persecute you. Following Christ comes at a cost. So he's saying, don't be surprised. A lot of times we, we act surprised when we go and we tell people, this is why I'm different, and they reject it. Right. Peter says, that's going to happen. They don't like different. They, they're going to see the different. They're going to notice it's different, and they're going to push back on it. There's going to be persecution that comes. Following Christ comes at a cost. Seeking God's will will cost you in this life. But remember... We are not citizens of this world. We are not citizens, ultimately, of this life. Persecutions will come, but God is just, and those people, he says, will stand before God and give account one day. Again, we see that our response to God's grace in the presence of His enemies is not dependent on how they respond to us or how they treat us. We are to seek God's will and let Him sort it out in the end. Let Him sort out justice in the end. All will one day stand before God in judgment and either be found kingdom citizens or be condemned to eternity in hell. And the criteria that differentiates the two is who is the Lord of your life? Is it God or is it yourself? Who determines your course of action? Who determines what you do and where you go and what you say? Is it God's will or is it my will? Again, we have the reminder to keep our eyes fixed on eternity. To see the present through an eternal lens. This inheritance of eternal life awaiting those who submit to the Lordship of Christ in their lives is the purpose of the gospel being proclaimed. He says that's why the gospel is preached. Here he references both his living audience and those believers that had already died at this point, both to the living and to those who have already died. All right. Though they died in the flesh, many even specifically died for their faith, he says even though they died in the flesh, they did not die in vain. Their inheritance is just as secure as the reader's and just as secure as ours is today. Their inheritance is secure. Just because their flesh faced judgment, just because their flesh faced the judgment of sin in the fact that they had already died, he said, listen, that, that, that doesn't mean that their inheritance was ever on shaky ground. Their inheritance is set and secure. The gospel was proclaimed across the board. Our judgment in the flesh is death, and unless Christ returns soon, we will all face death. But because of the gospel... Death for the believer is the point at which we finally and perfectly cease from sin and receive this internal, eternal inheritance. And this is what Paul taught as well. We've talked every week, we talk about the similarities between what Peter teaches and what Paul taught and what Jesus teaches. And that all lines up for a reason. It all lines up for the reason. It's all interconnected. Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 through 18. Listen to what Paul says and tell me if this doesn't sound like exactly the same thing that Peter's describing. Verse 16, he says, So we do not lose heart. 
Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. As kingdom citizens and recipients of unmerited grace, not only are we to have the mind of Christ as we face persecution and suffering in this life, and to pursue God's will with our lives in everything that we say and do and everywhere that we go, but one way, one way that we are to do that is to be diligent in prayer. Be diligent in prayer. In 1 Peter 4, look at verse 7. Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. The end is near. We are in the last days and Jesus' return is imminent. With that in mind, he reminds them again to be sober-minded. To be self-controlled. Again, we saw those same terms. We defined those back in chapter 1. But for what purpose? Specifically here, he's talking about prayer. Do this because for the sake of your prayers. Peter has repeatedly reminded his readers that Christ's return is imminent. We've seen this over and over and over again. This theme keeps popping up throughout this letter. Christ's return is imminent. We have an inheritance waiting for us that is sure. Our time here is temporary and that we are to live as exiles in this world. Peter over and over and over again keeps bringing this theme up to live with an eternal perspective. And the clear implication here is that God's people are to view time here in this life differently than the rest of the world. We are to steward or to use or to spend our time differently. In light of the fact that the end is near, we are to be self-controlled and sober-minded, clear-headed and aware living intentionally in all we do for His will and His glory for the sake of our prayers. Now, prayer here, prayer is intended and it's expected. Prayer is assumed to be an integral part of the believer's life. It's just assumed. It's as if prayer is going to be, if you're a Christ follower, prayer is going to be part of your life. His command is to be self-controlled and to be sober-minded, but the prayer part is just assumed, as if there, there is no distinction. How can you be a Christ follower and have no prayer life? That's, that's the implication there, and a lot of times we, we miss that. The prayer, just because the prayer is not, the, that's not the command here, right? just because it's not the command doesn't mean it's optional. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. It's assumed. It's expected. It's easy in today's world to, to look at the news and to look at everything that's going on in the world and to fall into fear or stress or dismay or depression because of it. And it's equally easy to turn it all off and tune it all out and fill your time with the business of life so as to be distracted from reality and so pretend that nothing is going on. We have, I, I've stunned so many people that fall into both camps. Either we're consumed by the world and the events of the world, or we bury our head in the sand and say, well, I'm just going to pretend nothing is going on. We have people who all they talk about is what's going on and what's, what's in the news, and then I have some people who brag about how long it's been since they watched the news. Well, I hadn't watched the news in 10 years. 
Congratulations. We've missed the point here. The truth, as usual, where we should be is somewhere in the middle. If we become consumed by the world or if we become apathetic toward the world, toward the world it hinders our ability to pray. We even today must recognize that we don't know when Christ will return. If it was imminent, if the end of all things was near for Peter and his audience 2,000 years ago, how much more imminent is it for us today? We don't know when Christ will return, but it will be soon, and that should drive us to be clear-headed and laser-focused so that we can pray as He has instructed us to, seeking His will and His glory. Knowing that the, end is, in, that the end is near should drive us not to distraction or to obsession, but it should drive us to prayer. It should drive us to God. It should drive us to seeking His will. Knowing that the time, that my time here is coming to an end, knowing that our time in this world is coming to an end, knowing that this entire world is coming to an end, knowing these things should drive us to... How can I use what little time that I have to make a difference for your kingdom? How can I spend it wisely? It should drive us to seeking God's will in prayer. And as recipients of the saving grace of God, our lives should be marked by prayer. So let me ask you this. How important is prayer to you? What precedent does it take in your life? How, how important, what, what priority in your list of priorities, where does prayer fall in your daily routine? Does being reminded that our time is short motivate you to pray more diligently? I hope so. Because that's, that's the point that Peter is making with his audience. That, that's his goal. He is reminding them of this to encourage them. Again, this is not, this is, Peter's not browbeating. He's encouraging them here. He's saying, listen, remember, remember the time is near, so be diligent in your prayers. Be clear-headed, be focused. Pay attention, but don't get consumed or distracted by the world. Don't become apathetic to the world. Remember, the time is, time is running out, so go to the Lord. Spend that time in prayer. Seek the Lord. Seek His will. And not only should we pray diligently, but we should also be committed to love. Committed to love. So look down there at verse 8. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. It says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Again, if this sounds repetitive, that's good, because it is. Peter has been saying the same things over and over. In many ways, these sermons are, are hard to prepare for, because Peter's saying the same thing over and over and over again, just using slightly different words. But if Peter, Peter has already explained this in his letter previously, on more than one occasion, that brotherly love is a mark of genuine faith. So if his audience needs to hear it twice, we probably do too. It's important. Jesus himself says as much in John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And this is what you guys looked at last week. All of last week's message was geared around this idea of our love for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And Peter reiterates the same thing. But the encouragement here is to keep loving one another. And that illustrates the fact that it, it requires work on our part. It doesn't just happen. It's a continuous effort. It requires a continuous effort, and it's not optional. 
It's not that we either do it perfectly or we don't do it at all. It's not an either-or kind of thing. It's rather that it's something that we continually strive to do with one another over and over. It's every day we have to commit ourselves to this. Every day this is an area where we need to grow. And this is so true in the church today. We all still struggle with sinful natures. So sometimes loving one another is hard if we're just being honest. Peter says, even when it's hard, keep going. Keep encouraging. Don't quit. Don't get distracted from your purpose. Don't let the struggles that we all face with our sinful natures, don't let that divide those who are supposed to be united in Christ. This idea of love covering sins doesn't mean that love erases them. It doesn't mean that they don't exist. It means being patient with them. Being patient with one another. Bearing with one another. Overlooking things when things can be overlooked. Now, we must call sin, sin, but we don't have to go around and point out every single little teeny tiny flaw with everybody else, with each other. How quickly would our church be divided if that was the case? If every time we got together, we just walked around and pointed fingers at everybody. Unrepentant sin must be dealt with according to the Bible standard for church discipline with the hopeful effect of restoring an erring brother or sister to righteousness in their lives. So even when it gets to the point of church discipline, it's still, even this is done out of a genuine love for one another. And since we all struggle with the sin nature, we do well to be patient with one another's flaws out of love for each other, knowing that God has been patient with us. Again, He is our example. Again, it's pointing us back to Christ and saying, follow Him. And give you one personal example, one personal illustration. I'm going to pick on Miss Gloria for a minute this morning. Um, so this has been been a while back. Uh, Miss Gloria had been, she had been, I don't remember if she had been in the hospital or she had been sick, um, not been feeling well. And been a couple of days, she had been, been absent. And we had noticed, I'd noticed that she hadn't been here, and I had asked Mr. Richard, how's, how's Miss Gloria doing? How's she feeling? But I never, I never called her. I just never crossed my mind. I was busy, had a bunch of other things going on, and I just didn't. And she called me one day, and she said, I just want you to know. She's Pastor Adam. She goes, I, I know you've been praying, and thank you for praying for me. And Richard said that you checked on me. She said, but it really bothered me that you never called me. She said, you, you never called to check on me. You never... Uh, I, it would have been nice for someone to call. She said, I, I, she said, I know you're busy, and I'm not, she says, I'm not mad at you. And she says, I'm not fussing or anything. I'm just letting you know that, you know, going forward, this, you know, you, this might be something that you want to think about. Because it, it, it did. It, it really bothered me. And that, for me, her, her love covered, I, that was a failure on my part. I, I should have called, and just it would have taken five seconds to call and check in and say how she was doing. But... Because she loved me, her response was not to get angry or to get mad or to just point out my flaws. She did it in such a way so that I could grow from it. And have I failed to call you since then? All right. <laughs> well, <laughs> probably so. <laughs> but it... <laughs> yeah, I walked right into that one, didn't I? <laughs> uh, but it changed the way... It changed, it, it changed me as a pastor. It changed the way I think about those things because I realized this is something that's really important to her and it's really important to other people. And I've been, not perfect, but much more diligent about making those phone calls and reaching out and checking in on people when they're not here because of the way 
she, because of the way she loved me, because of how she pointed it out to me, her love for me covered my failure and allowed me to learn and grow from that. The writer of Proverbs says in Proverbs 10, 12, hatred, cover, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. She didn't pretend like it never happened. She pointed it out, but she did it in a loving way so that I could learn from my mistake. She did it because she was concerned for me as a pastor. And so the question for you then is, are, are we all, are you seeking to live in harmony with brothers and sisters in Christ, even if it costs you because you love one another? Is that our desire? That was her entire purpose in that phone call to me was to, was, was to maintain peace, was to maintain that harmony so that I could see and grow. Are we doing the same thing or are we seeking to pull apart or withdraw from one another because I'm mad at so-and-so or I don't like the way so-and-so handled this or I disagree with you about this? Are, are we pulling ourselves apart? Are we distancing ourselves from one another or are we seeking to build those bridges? Or is our goal to live in harmony? We are to have the mind of Christ. We are to, to desire God's will. We're to be marked by prayer and love. And also, he says, to be joyful in hospitality. To be joyful in hospitality. Look at verse 9. He says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. The Israelites were supposed to be set apart from other nations by their hospitality. That, that was part of who they were as God's people. If you look at Leviticus chapter 19, verse 34, just a snippet from the law, Leviticus 19.34 says, You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. They were to be set apart from other nations by their hospitality towards, even towards outsiders, not just towards their own. And likewise, the church was marked by the same love for one another, the same hospitality. Look at Acts chapter 2, verses 44 through 45. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. We see the same idea, the same attitude in the early church. And in the same way, we too, even today, are to be known for hospitality because we recognize everything we have, everything that exists is ultimately God's. And everything we have, we have been given to use for His glory and His purpose. When we have this mindset, we are visibly different from the rest of the world. The rest of the world who sees their homes as theirs and, their, and money as theirs and food as theirs and cars as theirs, etc., etc., etc. When we, if we have laid down our arms and surrendered to the Lordship of God, then everything we have to, belongs to Him and is to be used by us. It's on loan to us to use for His glory and for His ministry, and, for, and we will one day give an account for how we used what we were, had been given. Notice He also throws in the encouragement to do so without grumbling. How many of us, how, how often do we need to be reminded of this? this is, it's kind of encouraging to know that that's not new for us. 2,000 years ago, Peter was having to tell his audience, listen, do these things and stop complaining about it. Do it with a good attitude. Do it without grumbling. It's possible to do the right thing for the wrong reason. Having someone in your home or loaning them a car or whatever the opportunity might be that, that is before you, 
if you show hospitality out of compulsion against your will, then it's not genuine hospitality and it's not honoring to God. It, reflect, it reflects a greater concern for pleasing self than for pleasing God. So the question for us, the test for us then is, does the way in which you use the physical blessings God has given you, does that reflect this mindset? Do you use the things that you own as yours or God's? This is a spiritual duty because it is commanded of God's people here. They are to be hospitable, to show hospitality. But it should flow naturally out of a right understanding of who really owns what we have been blessed with. So yes, it is a command, but that heart attitude, when we understand that everything is God's, that should be something that flows fairly naturally out of that. When we hold on to things, it reflects a much deeper problem than just a lack of hospitality. When we, when we, do, when we are not hospitable, when we are not generous, when we are not giving, when we hold on to things, it reflects a desire to own and not to recognize God's ownership. It reflects a desire to hold on to our things. These are mine rather than saying, this is all God's. Not only are we to be hospitable, hospitable, but we're also to be intentional in service. Intentional in service. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. According to this, which one of you has not received a gift? No one. Because everyone who's a child of God by faith has been gifted spiritually. That gift is assumed. It doesn't say, if you have received a gift. It says, as you have received. As each has received a gift. Everyone is gifted in different ways and to different degrees. But we're all called and intended and expected and needed to serve in the local church. To serve one another. The church is not here to serve you. You are here to serve the church. You're here to serve one another, not to be served. There's much, there, there, there legitimately is much blessing that comes from being involved in a local church, but that's a byproduct. Your role, your purpose, is to use your gift in whatever way you can to serve the people of the church. And serving the church is not just going to church and attending church. There are lots of people who go to church. There are lots of people who go to different churches, who bounce from service to service looking for something, looking to be fed or looking for a different type of music that speaks to them better, or preaching that they, that they like better, someone who communicates to them better, or looking for people that they have more in common with, looking for better programs for children or youth, etc., etc. But that misses the whole point. And the, the worst part about it is most of those things are not necessarily bad in and of themselves, but if any of these things or anything in particular, causes you to miss out on or to cut back on serving your local body of believers that you have been placed in, then according to Peter, you are not being a good steward of the grace you have been shown. A lot of times we take that way too, we, we, we treat that way too flippantly. When you're absent, the body feels it. The body knows it. Doesn't mean that there aren't times when we can't be here or we can't be involved in this, but those should be few and far between. 
Those should be the exception rather than the rule. That should be a worst case scenario, not the default. Because the reality is Satan weakens the church if God's people are too busy to serve one another or too distracted. And it's even better if they can justify it by saying, well, this is something good. I can go here and do this, that, and the other out here. And this, this, these are all good things. If it takes away from your ministry, then you are not being a good steward of the grace you've been given. We're all gifted in different ways. Peter here is encouraging these believers, and it extends to us today, to be diligent to be good stewards of God's grace and to use the gifts that you've been given to serve one another. To make the most of your time to serve generously those that God has put in your life. Your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Are you coming to church to see what you can get from the church? Are you coming looking to see how you can serve people in this church with the gifts and the abilities that God has given you? That's a question we all have to ask ourselves because we're all guilty of this from time to time. We're all guilty of falling into this consumer mindset. And it's something that we have to guard our hearts. That's why, and that's not unique to us. Again, that's why Peter is writing this letter. 2,000 years ago, Peter's writing this letter to a, a church in what is today Asia and encouraging them to do the same thing. Listen, stay focused. Stay focused. Don't neglect to serve one another. And lastly, we are to reflect Christ to the glory of God. Reflect Christ to the glory of God of the Father. Look at verse 11. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We are to be intentional in all that we do, that we mirror Christ in our lives. How many opportunities do we miss to show the love of Christ to outsiders, to non-believers, or to love our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, or to be hospitable, to serve one another? How many opportunities do we miss simply because we're just going through the motions of daily life and not living intentionally for God's glory? All that we do and all that we say should be for the glory of God. How many of your actions would be different if you filtered it through what was done? Am I doing this for God's glory? How does this bring glory to God? If you think about the things that you've done, the decisions you've made in your life, if you picture it as dirt. I used to uh, trap quite a bit and you'd take dirt and you'd put it in this screen and you'd shake it out and it would, all the fine dirt would come out and all the big chunks would be left behind. Or the, the rocks and the sticks and things like that. If you sifted that, if you sifted all the things that you had done in your life and you shook it through a screen like that so that all the stuff that was done for selfish reasons was sifted out, what would be left? And only what was left in the screen was what you had done for the glory of God. How much of your life would be left? That's, that hits close to home. All these spiritual duties are to be done with the spirit of humility, recognizing that it is God who grants us the strength to serve and the words to speak. 
We can only do these things not by our own power or our own will. Our own power, our own work can only take us so far. We can't do this on our own, but only by the grace of God through the strength of God. We must turn to Him for help. We must run to Him and rely on Him. And as we follow Him, we show the world His glory and majesty through our lives. We don't bring Him glory in the sense that we add to His glory or give Him something He doesn't already have. We can't make Him any greater But giving Him glory means letting other people see Him in us. It's pointing people to Him. So as we wrap up today, I want to to point out, just as you look back through these, if you'll notice, all of these are commanded and expected of God's people. They are. Each one of these duties is something that Peter says, as children of God, this is what you are to do. Do this. Be this way. They're all commands, but they really all flow naturally from simply seeking to follow Christ's example. We can summarize it in that way. If we have received the saving grace of God, then these are things that should really already describe us. Peter's encouraging them to continue doing what they are already doing. He's reminding them to not give up, to not quit. He's not giving them new instructions. And thus, this text should serve as an, as, an, as an encouragement to keep fighting the fight. To follow Christ. In order to follow Him, it requires having the mind of Christ. And the mind of Christ desires God's will, which turns first and often to diligent prayer, which keeps our focus where it needs to be so that we can live intentionally for His glory and how we love one another and how we show hospitality to one another and how we serve one another and thereby thereby in all things revealing the beauty of our God to those around us. They're all connected. It's not just a list. It's not just a checklist of do's and don'ts in order to be a Christian. You have to do all these things. This This is what Peter is saying is if you are a Christ follower, then this is what your life should look like. All these things naturally flow out of understanding who God is and following Him. This is what it means to follow Christ. And he's encouraging them to keep going, to not get distracted, to not veer off the course, but to stay focused, to be sober minded. They're all connected. They're all intertwined. But none of us does all of these perfectly. We have strengths and we have weaknesses. We all still struggle with that, the remnants of that sinful nature. And so this morning, as we close, as Michelle comes to play out, I want you to just stop and reflect for a minute. Stop and reflect for a minute. Of the duties that we've listed, the, very, the seven spiritual duties that it, from this passage, the seven commands... In which of these areas are you, is a, which of these seven is a strength? And in which of these areas do you struggle? Because for many of us, as you're going down, if you're like me and you're going through these things, there's probably at least one that jumped out at you and said, that's, that's hard. That's hard for me. In which one of these areas do you struggle? That's really what Peter's getting at here. Reflect on that for a minute. What is it that needs to change in your life to better reflect the glory of God to those around you? It's easy to get distracted and not be intentional. And there are certain things, because we're all different, there are certain things that some of us struggle with more than others. That's going to be different. What is it that needs to change in your life to better reflect the glory of God to those around you? But don't stop there and then make a plan of attack. 
It's not enough to just pinpoint your weaknesses. Understanding where you're weak and what you struggle with, that's step one. That's a good first step. But now what are you going to do about it? Or maybe you're listening this morning thinking, you know what, none, none of this really describes my life. None of this really describes my attitude at all. In that case, if that's you, Pastor Mark or myself, we would love to take some time and walk you through what it looks like to surrender to Christ, to surrender your life to Jesus and follow Him in obedience. I'll be at the front. He will be at the back at the end of our service today. If you want to talk, if you want us to pray, we would love to do that. Please don't, don't hesitate. Don't miss out on that opportunity. But reflect on that for just a minute. Where is it that you struggle? And what are we going to do about it? Don't be content to just know, well, I'm just not good at that. No, that's not what Peter's saying. Peter's encouraging his audience to continue on, to fight the good fight. If this is where you're weak, then let's work on that. Let's seek to be intentional in that specific area. Let's focus on that one. Let's drill down on that one. What are we going to do about it? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today, for our time together again this morning, for your word. Lord, I pray that the words that were spoken today were yours and not mine. Lord, I thank you for the guide that, that, that your word is, for how timely it is. There's so many things in this short little letter that Peter wrote that are so applicable to our lives today. Things that, that we need to hear, encouragement that we need to hear in the face of what we're facing in our nation, in our time today. Lord, we thank you just for, again, the fact that you don't change. And your word is just as true today as it was 2,000 years ago as it was 10,000 years ago. That the God of Genesis is the God of Revelation. And Lord, we can, we can take that to the bank. We can hang our hat on that, knowing that you are faithful and you will keep your promises just like you always have. Lord, help us to recognize that you lived an example for us. And Lord, help us to not just go through the motions of life, living for ourselves, but Lord, help us to understand that being a disciple means literally following you, following your example. So Lord, as we leave this place today, as we worship you, I pray that our worship would be pleasing to your ear from a right heart attitude, desiring to, to lift high your name and praise you for who you are and what you've done. But also as we leave this place today, Lord, conform us, conform our lives to your image. Give us the strength to serve. Give us the patience to love one another. Help us to be clear-headed and focused and be intentional to live in everything we say and do for your glory. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.